from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll have a discussion with author Kelsey Ronan, author of the new novel, Chevy in the Hole, which takes place in Detroit and Flint and asks us to consider what we might owe to places that we have walked away from or even abandoned. Then we're going to hear about a musical production that explores the lives of juveniles sentenced to life in prison. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Here in the Midwest, we really understand the idea of trying to do more with less. Divestment, crumbling infrastructures, a shrinking population, they, they all make life a lot harder. They make things a lot more difficult. But that doesn't mean that those of us who live in these places hate our lives or our cities. Like everyone else, we lead complicated lives here in the Rust Belt. They have many twists and turns. But mostly, we're just like everyone else, trying to find joy and levity amid sometimes really difficult situations. Author Kelsey Ronan is from one of these cities here in the Rust Belt, and it has gotten a lot of national and international attention in the past decade. She's a writer who grew up in Flint, and she's watched as her city has been captured in often oversimplistic ways that distort the very real people who live there. So she's trying to do Flint justice in some ways, and she's recently written a novel titled Chevy in the Hole, which is a reference to the old Chevy plant and soon-to-be state park in Flint. Her work leads readers through a really complicated tale of addiction, family history, and romance. And in it, she left me thinking, what do we owe these cities like Flint or Detroit that we've divested from? What do we owe the people who are trying to just live and enjoy their lives in these spaces? And what is the best way to facilitate the humanity and complexity of these places? What's the best way to recognize the fullness of life in these places? The things that other people so often dismiss. I'm really glad to have Kelsey Ronan here with us to talk about these things and more. Kelsey, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hi, thank you so, so much for having me. And I want to start with Gus, who's, of course, one of the protagonists in the book, who's recovering from an overdose and moves from Detroit to Flint to get sober and eventually falls in love with the other main character in the book, Monet. Talk about the inspiration for this story. Sure. Um, so Gus specifically came um, pretty closely from my life. I was widowed at, in, at 24. My partner died of a drug overdose. And so um, it wasn't something I set out to write about. I would say my attitude in my 20s um, was that if I got out of Flint um, where he had passed and where we'd grown up together, you know, if I got out of Flint then I just wouldn't have to think about it anymore. So, of course, by the time I hit 30 and I was living in St. Louis and the water crisis broke, that was proving to be very much not true. So these stories that I had been working on um, about a family that in some ways mirrored mine, my grandfather, uh, like the family in the, in the book, my grandfather had grown up in Detroit and moved to Flint in the 40s. Um, that story started to become overtaken by this story of love and addiction. So it really was a way in which I processed grief and it was grief both for, you know, my partner who had passed, but also for what, you know, in real time I was witnessing my hometown go through. And, and that metaphor, I think, is really powerful, especially for those of us who live in places like Detroit or Flint, where, um, where we're not just dealing with the death or the struggle of the place that we're from, but that, that so many of us have had that close experience with somebody whose personal despair uh, touches us so 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 deeply. Um, I wonder how comfortable you feel talking more about uh, the death of your partner and the effect that that had, not just on your work here, but uh, but on you. Sure, I feel absolutely comfortable talking about it, and I will say it's one of the gifts of you know the book's just been out a few weeks, and it's been quite a whirlwind and quite a dream. Um, this is, you know, this is my first book and I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into, but just in doing readings in the Detroit and Flint area the last couple of weeks, I've had so many people who've come up to me and said very quietly, like, you know, I too have someone in my family or am in love with someone or was in love with someone who suffered from these things too. And even though I feel like we're getting, it's becoming more normalized, maybe through force of the opioid crisis of, of, as you said, like everyone has been touched by it in some way. And maybe there are also some things like the kind of Instagram normalization of talking about mental health, but there is still that little bit of, um, you know, a feelings of like secrecy or shame in talking about addiction and in talking about grief and that fear of judgment of what people will assume about you if you bring yourself too closely into that. 
Um, and I'm really happy to be breaking that open as wide as I can. I'm very happy to be um, honored, really, to be talking about it. So let's talk a little about the story uh, in mm-hmm. this book. Uh, Monet is a pretty cool character. She runs a farm in Flint. Uh, she's really quite powerful and has a lot going for her. Uh, and Gus is sort of the opposite, of course. He's he's really struggling. Talk about why she falls for Gus in the story and what he has that I guess she wants access to. I think she's someone who is is carrying so much. She's someone who's very young and has an enormous amount of pressure upon her. She's a caretaker in her family. She has a very small family. Her uncle is a politician, so she has um, both this pressure at home to... Um, help take care of her mother, who is uh, disabled after the accident that killed her father. Um, the pressure to take care of her and also this pressure is, is just coming into like leaving college and coming into a professional career in Flint um, to do very well. And so I think in one way, when she meets Gus, He's this person who is in the very early stages of recovery and has a great deal of time that he's looking to fulfill, has this like emotional intensity where he's sort of immediately kind of obsessed with her and taken with her. And though she's leery of that, it is very um, flattering to have someone who isn't coming at her with a great deal of expectation, but just sort of lavishing time and attention on her in the ways that that is um, both exciting and, and possibly problematic. Mm. I also, um, you know, I see her as someone who is still processing grief and it's a, it's a long grief in the way that that often is. She lost her father some years ago and there's pressure to quote unquote move on to heal, to make this new life for herself. And it's become, um, I don't want to say taboo, but I feel like the family, her mother is moving on, is dating, and she is still very much holding her father's memory and her her relationship with Gus that becomes a place where um, to really access that grief, um, he becomes a safe space for her to do that. Mm. Hmm. I'm talking with author Kelsey Ronan about uh, her new book, Chevy in the Hole, uh, which takes a look at a number of different things, family, uh, addiction, relationships, and really kind of asks us to stop and think for a moment about places like Detroit and Flint and these other Rust Belt cities that we kind of leave behind that uh, are subject to such disinvestment and abandon it, and to ask what we owe those cities. Uh, What do we owe the people who are just trying to live and enjoy life in these spaces? Uh, What are are the kinds of development and investment that we could collectively bring to underinvested neighborhoods? 
or communities. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can uh, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Kelsey, in the book, you explore environmental racism and particularly how the past bleeds into the present through multiple family histories. Did you plan to write that way? How did you manage to include, I guess, all of that in, in one story? So much of that came from, and again, I'm going to go back to uh, when the water crisis broke, when the news of that broke, I was living in St. Louis. Um, and so I had, I had very much grown up with, you know, I was born in the eighties. I had, I had grown up in that kind of like post Roger and me Flint where the, the changes and the inequities in Flint were very visual. Um, there were things that, you know, before I could intellectually grapple with them, I think I very much internalized them. And I saw the way my neighborhood was changing. I saw the way my school was changing and I became increasingly aware as I was living outside of the city, you know, I moved out when I was 25 um, of comments people would make to me about Flint and Flint being a kind of punchline of one of those, you know, quote unquote, worst cities in America or whatever. And I thought I knew the city really well. I, and I want to like very transparently I like point to my positionality here like I'm a working class person I'm a white person I'm a cis woman um and I knew the stories of the city from my grandparents I knew my family's history you know as auto workers as working class people and it wasn't until the water crisis when I um was in St. Louis and looking at the the distinction between the national narrative of Flint versus, you know, my phone calls home, my trips home, social media, what I was seeing, and then starting to uh, really engage in the work of uh, journalists who like people like Anna Clark, of course, who wrote The Poison City, uh, Andrew Highsmith, who uh, amazing writer and the author of a uh, book on Flint, Demolition Means Progress, who were unpacking that legacy in Flint of, of systemic racism, of environmental racism that, you know, GM as Generous Motors, as it was called for so long in Flint, was GM Crow for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so when, um, when the water crisis happened and there was immediately people pointing to like this is not this is not a coincidence that this happened to um a city that is largely low income a city that is largely black and brown people and other people being like no this was you're playing the race card you're whatever you're whatever this absurdity um of having those journalists point out like no this is this is the kind of climax of what's really a a long and ugly history of the way um, 
the city and corporations have treated marginalized people. Mm-hmm. And and in telling the story through fiction, I guess talk about uh, maybe what license you felt you had that you might not have had as a journalist trying to tell that story, and I guess ways that that you might have been able to, I guess, be more refined in the way that you did tell uh, that story. I, I think uh, one of the one of the great things about fiction is that, of course, it allows us to imagine possibilities that uh, that the real world doesn't doesn't offer. Um, I guess talk about the process of putting this story together in in that fictional way. I think so many Flint millennials like me have grown up with um, always in that context of being told there there was this other Flint that you didn't know. This other Flint that like closed out before you were born and you weren't there, but the population used to be four times as much. There used to be, you know, these places where you could go see amazing music or these places where you could have whatever, whatever the experience was, the downtown streets. Uh, I think Detroit very much has that um, relationship to the kind of like ghosts of former eras or other generations. And so the book and having the book be fiction. Um, and I, sh- I should stop and say that fiction is, is my background and I am a voracious fiction reader. I think if I, was a journalist and had the the skills in in research. I I would have absolutely written that kind of book about the water crisis. So I'm I'm working with the limitations of my of my skills. But um, you know, I had a kind of strange longing for things as recent as like the Auto World theme park in the '80s. As much as that has been like lampooned. Um, if I had a time machine, I would totally go back and go, you know? Um, I'm so curious about that. Or, you know, like, I'm a, a music nerd and growing up um, learning about, like, the jazz acts that used to come through Flint and, like, play the Golden Leaf or the IMA or, you know, it being a stop on the Motown tour. Like, how amazing. So fiction just became a, a kind of, I guess, little time machine for me to to move in my imagination back to those places to imagine what it was like. And also um, I got really deeply into research with this book, but largely through um, oral archives. Um, so looking at the, the stories that had not been immediately accessible through my understanding of Flint um, to, again, like women, to people of color, and looking at their experiences through oral archives at the public library, through newspapers, through, um, you know, documentaries, smaller budget things that I could find on YouTube about, like, the women's auxiliary of the sit-down strike, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back and seeing how even those kind of, like, glory days of Flint, the things that people in like M Live comments love to point back to of like, oh, back before, you know, insert your agenda here. Back before that happened, things were so beautiful. 
like, well, it, that was never quite true. You know, it was never, it was never beautiful for everybody. It was never equal access for everybody. Um, so having a place in fiction to access both like the, the novelties and the big moments and the landmarks in Flint's history, but also to look at the different facets of it, of what was true and not for people at that time. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, author Kelsey Ronan. I want to get going on the phones and on social media as well. Call and tell us what you think we owe cities like Detroit and Flint that we have divested from, walked away from. Also, talk about how we take care of the people in places like uh, Detroit and Flint, uh, given that disinvestment, given the desperation that uh, attends a lot of our lives, which we're just really trying to live and enjoy. Also, give us a call and let us know about your experience with people uh, who suffer from addiction. Um, uh, another one of the, the big themes in Chevy in the whole, uh, how, how we feel, how we react when people close to us go through that kind of crisis. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm talking with author Kelsey Ronan. Her book, Chevy in the Hole, takes a look at a number of different dynamics in our lives, including romance and loss and love, uh, but also takes a look at uh, cities like Detroit and Flint, places that so many of us love so deeply, but that have been terribly neglected for such a long time and where life is pretty difficult for a lot of us. Uh, what do we owe to those cities that, that we have disinvested in so profoundly? What do we owe the people who live in those cities? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Um, uh, Kelsey, uh, image, Flint has this image of being uh, deserted that, that we've been talking about, and I think that leads a lot of people to believe that no one wants to live there, for instance, or, or that no one who, who matters to any of us would actually live there. Um, I want you to talk just a little about the Flint that you know, uh, how you experience it, and, and how you imagine it. Sure. I mean, I've um, you know, had the, the honor of talking about this quite a bit recently, but when I when I was in St. Louis and the the water crisis story was first breaking, it was confusing in part because there was this this you know narrative that I was following through national media outlets like 
the New York Times where the um, the story was very much that this was an absolute catastrophe, which is true, but that um, the response was that anyone who had any means whatsoever was leaving Flint immediately and that Flint, the only people left would be the people who were um, frankly too poor um, to leave. And I don't want to dismiss that as, as the reality for people. There's been a huge betrayal in Flint and there is, um, there are many people who are disenfranchised and, and, feel they don't have those choices but at the same time um you know it was odd to be watching these these stories and to hear these projections of the population loss of people leaving in droves but at the same time like you know it's a city where my family is again working class people it's it's the city where I lived until I was 25 I have lots of wonderful friends there lots of connections to that community. I didn't know anyone that was leaving. Um, if anything, you know, I know so many people who have moved into Flint from the suburbs or from farther away um, in the last years, looking at Flint as, you know, as an opportunity to launch small businesses, to do interesting things, people identifying um, these gaps in the community and these needs to fill and people who are um, just ride or die for Flint and would never live anywhere else who have tremendous pride in the city. Um, so that was not a story that I saw told. Hmm. Um, and I see, I think we see that in like the, the many, many activists that have, that have stepped up um, in the water crisis and after, and frankly, who were doing that work before. Um, so that's certainly something, you know, in the city, I would, I would, that makes me feel so much like hope and pride in Flint, but also a story that I wish was lifted up more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think it would take to repair Flint, to make it I guess, whole again. Um, and, and by that, I mean, not just the way it was before the water crisis, but the way it was a long time ago where there was much more opportunity uh, and much more stability. I'm always curious uh, how people who are from Flint think of the city's future. Sure. And I, I wish that I had a profound answer to that. And I think if I did have a profound answer to that, I would like move back now and run for city council or something, you know, like I, I don't know. Um, I can certainly point to the many issues, you know, in Flint, things like employment, things like, you know, repairing the, the legacy of Flint as, you know, this, this one industry factory town, um, looking at things like, like education again, and, and in environmental, um, the kind of phytoremediation efforts of the actual, you know, pulling the, 
the toxins that industry left in the soil and, and reusing that land and making it healthy again. Um, but God, as far as, as what exactly, what is the, what would be the dream plan for Flint moving forward? Um, I'm, I'm very sorry to say that I'm too, <laughs> I'm too, I'm too ignorant to know, but that I have, there are so many people I have hope in and I'm, um, yeah. uh, excited to see where they go. Well, uh, one thing I think that we can hope for at least is that, uh, that the stories that get told about Flint are maybe richer or more accurate, uh, more reflective of, of the experience that people who are from there actually have. Um, you were talking earlier uh, about Roger and Me, uh, the, the movie by, uh, by filmmaker Michael Moore, and uh, your, your sort of view of, of how that portrayed Flint. I, I think we've come a really long way from that kind of one-sided, maybe, view of, of the city. And, and there, is, there is a richer storytelling, I think, uh, that's taking place. There is. I mean, there are so many people, there's so many names that are just like, I, I want to, I just want to shout out right now people who are um, truly inspirational people, but who are doing that work as, you know, Flint folks of telling its story and telling it with joy and telling it with nuance. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the folks at East Village Magazine, nonprofit community-based newspaper that has become such um, a hub, you know, for information and telling neighborhood-based stories and getting to the root of city politics that's hard to do in, you know, the age of, of MLive and the, which is not a dig at MLive at all, but in the, you know, the absence of a lot of community-based journalism. One of my um, favorite people in Flint is Egypt Otis, who um, started a, a bookstore in downtown Flint, opened during the pandemic, and the work she is doing to promote literature and storytelling and culture in Flint and the voices she is lifting up at Kama Bookstore downtown, utterly amazing. Uh, the musician Tunde Alanaram, their music, again, amazing. These high profile now, like just to, just to pretend that I'm like special too, I will say that I <laughs> back in the day, like before Tunde <laughs> became Tunde, they right. lived across the street. They lived across the street from my mom. And now they're doing these collaborations with like Yo-Yo Ma. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, just, just absolutely extraordinary. And and so beautiful and, and feels to me so authentic to like the richness and the possibilities right now in Flint versus the, the tired, you know, doom and gloom, Michael Moore narrative of like the eighties and nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you want people to take away from Chevy in the hole? Not just about Flint, but, uh, about all the other themes and issues that, that you kind of raise with this really beautiful story. Um, is it an optimistic story, do you think? Um, is it just a real story? Uh, what, what, what would you hope people were inspired to think or feel? Uh, 
I do think of it as a, uh, it's funny, I, I've had some conversations lately about the, the ending of the book, which, you know, without giving anything away, in my mind is a very uh, hopeful ending, a very optimistic ending. And, but I think depending on where you are <laughs> in, your, in your relationship to, to where you live or in your romantic life, like, you know, I had a, a journalist ask me, like, is this, you know, is this a story about settling? I was mm. like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess, yes and no, but I, I want it to be a, a story about, I feel I've overused this word, but like reckoning, truly reckoning with, um, with your home. In, in my case, of course, that's Flint um, of both what is what is toxic and what is beautiful about it. Interrogating family and intergenerational traumas, and as much as you are able, looking clear-eyed at where you come from and making um, a choice in how you respond. I'm very interested throughout the book in the. I feel Monet is someone as a character who is sort of this idea thrown at her all the time that things are just happening to her. Her falling in love just happens to her. But as she sees it, her her decision to enter that relationship, her decision to um, to be involved in urban agriculture, they're very much decisions. She's aware of of, of who she is and where she's from and that's growing clearer um, and ultimately it's a life that she wants and not a series of, of sad and strange things that just happened to her. Yeah. Okay, Kelsey Ronan, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about uh, Chevy and the Hole, this wonderful story you told about, uh, about many things, but a especially about your hometown of Flint. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been really great. When we come back, we are going to talk about a new production that is coming to Chamber Music Detroit that is based on the life of a juvenile life, a really unusual expression of art and a great conversation coming up next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Jeff Scott is a composer and hornist who wrote the music for the world premiere of the production Fallen Petals of Nameless Flowers. It's performed by the American wind quintet, Imani Winds, and it is based on the lives of juvenile lifers, and it's going to be playing April 9th at the Seligman Performing Arts Center in Beverly Hills. The show, which is commissioned by Detroit Chamber Music, uh, includes influences from Brian Jones, who's a community engagement manager for the organization, and a former juvenile lifer. 
used stories of juvenile lifers to help develop this show. Fallen Petals of Nameless Flowers takes a meaningful story and illuminates it through art, telling the stories of four Michiganders who were sentenced to life without parole when they were juveniles. To talk more about telling true and often tragic stories through music, we have both Brian and Jeff here with us. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And Jeff, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having us. So, Jeff, uh, for novices out there, let's talk first about what chamber music is, how it works, and what kind of instruments are involved in its production. Well, chamber music, uh, really, it's for small ensembles. Um, you might be used to, one might be used to large orchestras with strings and percussion and um, all kinds of wind instruments. Um, with a conductor in front, and that's a real key element to it. Chamber music tends to be 12 musicians or less um, and without a conductor most of the time, and that's the key difference. Mm. And who came up with the idea of writing the music for this production based on the life of ex-juvenile lifers, and why is chamber music the right vehicle for telling that story? Well, I think the chamber... Oh, sorry. Please, Brian. Go ahead, Brian. Um, If I can step in, a few things need to be clarified. Um, The the four Michiganders, they're now in their 40s and 50s, and yes, they were juveniles, but I was not actually a juvenile lifer. Um, It was my participation going to hearings and everything that uh, started the conversation at Chamber Music Detroit, and we thought that this would be a good vehicle par- partially because we we were looking at an audience who had been marginalized and I wanted to present an art- a, an audience or a group of people who were also being marginalized. But once we uh, decided this was a route that we wanted to take and the National Endowment of the Arts uh, approved the idea, we engaged with Robert Layler another Detroit native uh, to take these uh, interviews with me and create the narrative and these all four of them into a single poetic narrative. And then Jeff was brought, you know, he, it was provided to Jeff who did an awesome job of creating a new piece with seven instruments and, and the spoken word. And you've already shared that it's going to be on April 9th at, uh, Seligman Performing Arts Center, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was pretty much the genesis of the idea, but it's the conversations with Jeff and Robert and Steve, uh, the president of Chamber of Music Detroit, that really brought all of this together into, we need, we really need to pursue this. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, I need to apologize to you uh, for referring in the open to you being a former juvenile lifer. That was information that uh, our producers actually got somehow um but but talk about how you collected stories from juvenile lifers for your production and and i guess what what inspires you to to be curious about that well one of the things that uh i have to admit is yes i was a lifer i had a parolable life and i knew these individuals personally you know in prison and after prison and i was so proud to see them out here succeeding. However, 
my goal isn't just to share that these 17, 16, 15-year-olds were able to come out here and be successful. My goal is to also share there are other people who are just like them who are still languishing in there. My interest is only in providing hope for people who would otherwise otherwise be experiencing hopelessness. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Jeff, let's talk just a little more about the music here and this chamber aspect of, of, of telling, telling this story. Why is this in your mind, the right, the right way to do this? Well, chamber music tends to move a lot quicker, a lot more progressively than uh, large orchestral, um, organizations, um, and there are a whole lot more of them in comparison to orchestras per state, let's say. There'll be dozens of chamber music societies well, that where there might be just a handful of uh, orchestras. And so it's a great vehicle. It's also usually the uh, chamber music societies tend to take more risks. Um, they tend to have a lot more varied uh, programming, um, and they'll they'll feel their orchestra. Their, sorry, their, their audience a lot more. They'll sort of understand their audience a lot more and know just how far they can pull them into certain social issues. And so, I think chamber music has always been at the forefront of uh, cultural issues. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with uh, two people who are involved uh, with the production which is coming up on April 9th, of Fallen Petals of Nameless Flowers is performed by the American Wind Quintet, Imani Winds, and the show is based on the lives of juvenile lifers. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What kind of art are you drawn to? What kind of stories do you think make compelling art? And what sort of music drives you around the idea of art? Uh, what kinds of pieces of art do you think capture amazing stories. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Edward in Washtenaw County. Edward, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, and good morning. Um, this is a um, very unique time for you to take and be discussed in the concern of juvenile lifers. Mm -hmm. This month is a presidential um, um, proclamation of second chance. My name is Edward Sanders. I served more than 43 years in Michigan prison. Mm -hmm. I went to prison at the age of 17. I returned home just before my 60th birthday. Mm -hmm. I am now a graduate from the University of Michigan School of Social Work. I have formerly been employed here in Washington County in their conviction, integrity, and expungement unit. I am also the former jailhouse attorney of Bryant Jones, who you are interviewing now. <laughs> um, <laughs> you had a lot of connections to this show here, Edward. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I thought it very important to take and churn in. As Bryant takes and point out, there are many others that are still languishing in our prisons that shouldn't be there. One of the points that the United States Supreme Court made in their rulings were was that these children are innocent of the sentencing that they received. As states, we are placing too much emphasis on punish, punishment mm -hmm. versus rehabilitation. 
as Bryant would take and point out to you, these young men and women that number in the hundreds that have been released back here in the state of Michigan are all doing great things. They're doing great things. They don't represent the typical person that come back home from prison. They tend to be very much involved in social activity, demanding social justice, trying to right-size our society to be more inclusive of people who have made mistakes in their past and that want to move on into the future. So this is a very important topic. Mm. Yeah, Edward, I'm glad you called. Before I let you go, I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk a little more about your experience, the, the idea of spending so long in prison, having gone in when you were 17 and not coming out until you're almost 60. Talk about how you put your life back together, or, or I guess in some cases just found your life since you never had that opportunity in the first place. It's an excellent question. Um, we kind of say that we are home, but you're not. You can take an attempt to try to get home after having been released for more than 10 or 20 years. It's a continuous struggle every day because there are so many barriers and layers of barriers that you have to take and try to overcome to take it and, 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 and exceed, succeed. I came out with a statue that took and said that I couldn't even have good time for the good behavior that I had performed while in prison. I had to go to court to acquire that. Had I not got that, I would have never got on a major college or university campus. Soon as that was removed, I was able to get in graduate school and get a master's degree in less time than you would have taken and held me on a parole. These things are very important. We need to allow people to take a return home in less time. We need to take and spend less time in punishing and more time on treatment. If we were to do that, we would be looking at thousands of other youth, formal youth, that should be allowed to come back into our society. The, the, the science that Bryant Stevenson and his legal team use in neuroscience, they use the cross-discipline in their law, and they borrowed from a neuroscience that demonstrated that children are less culpable but more capable of reform. And when we say children, they introduce the evidence not only of young and middle adolescents, but even older adolescents. We talking about people up in their mid-20s. We can use the science and bring these men and women back home from our prisons. And instead, we are planning, the governor has just made an announcement to spend millions of dollars in multitudes of prisons throughout the state in what she's claiming to be technology. This is a gimmick uh, 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 to take and provide an economic stimulus, but it's short-sighted. There is no economic stimulus that excludes human capital. And we have human capital languishing in Michigan prisons. We need to bring them home and allow them to be productive members again in our society. Hmm. Uh, Edward, I'm really glad that you called and shared not only... Um not only your thoughts, but 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 your experience, so Brian. I want to give you a chance to react since you you know uh, Edward. It, it seems, and and of course, uh, know lots of people like this who have the same stories. 
Yes, I do know uh, Mr. Sanders. Um, we were very close, especially around 2000. Um, that was a time when we were working hard to try and find a, a solution to my incarceration. However, uh, that was almost 20 years ahead of when I actually walked out of there. So I had stopped doing that, but I had still engaged with the young people in there because they needed something that was going to give them a stimulus for their minds. I participated in programs and brought them in because I needed them to be better in our community because mm. that is a microcosm in there. That community in there becomes your community out here. When you care about someone in there, then you can learn to care about someone out here. And that is the the reason why uh, the juveniles actually brought me in after the decision in 2016 to get them prepared. One of the things we do not do is talk about what, how we ended up where we were. Yeah. So yeah. they had me uh, come in and, and create a program or create a method of getting of drawing out their narrative, getting their stories out. That's the same thing we did with Robert Laidler to get the story out. There, the people who were chosen for this were chosen because of their, their diverse backgrounds. Uh, you had a star athlete. You had a person who was uh, uneducated. For, when you walk into a courtroom and you're uneducated, how can you help your defense help you? Right. Right. Uh, we also have a person who, when a person has been doing something for you and then they ask you to do something for them, you just do it because you you almost feel obligated because they've been helping you for so long. I wanted to show that no matter the influence that a child undergoes, they can still overcome the decision that leads them down that dark path. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh uh, Brian and Jeff, it was really great to have both of you here uh, talking about this wonderful work of art. And a reminder to listeners, uh, Fallen Petals of Nameless Flowers will play April 9th at the Seligman Performing Arts Center in uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, Brian and Jeff, thanks so much for oh, being here on one, today. Yeah, could I say also, if anyone needs uh, more information or tickets, you can also go to cmdetroit.org or 313 or call 313-335-3300 for our ticket offices. Yes. Uh, we will be glad to have you in our audience. We expect this to be very moving experience. Yes, it absolutely will. And we will have all that information uh, on our WDET.org website as well. Stephen, I would like you to be there. Yeah. You know, I will not be in town on April ninth. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in, I'm in Missouri uh, a lot these days, tending to uh, a family medical issue. So, uh, but I will be thinking great thoughts uh, during the performance. And online, wishing you well. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for having us. <laughs> that's right. I could watch it online. That's right. I could watch it online. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to be talking about the history of lynching in America. And the new anti-lynching law that was finally passed after more than a century of failed attempts. What do we expect to see be different in America because of its passage? This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.